Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Hate crimes against Jews and Muslims are reaching all-time highs, according to the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism. But it's not just the crimes. People are worried about wearing their headscarves and yarmulkes. They're wondering what it might mean or invite or say to place a menorah in the window. Longtime progressive folks of different religions and backgrounds suddenly don't know where they stand with each other. As the headline of an editorial in the San Francisco Chronicle put it, as San Francisco Muslims and Jews, we've always felt safe in our city until now. We'll check in with its authors and talk with experts on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. For many of us, the Bay Area has been a haven of tolerance, acceptance, belonging. Wherever we may have come from, whether we grew up in the shadow of Sutro Tower or moved from some small town here or abroad, we're here, often because we wanted to live in a place where we could be free to express ourselves and our identities. But as the Israel-Hamas war continues, this place seems split in ways that I've never seen. People are afraid, Jews and Muslims both, Nadia Rahman and Ruth Ferguson expressed this sentiment in a recent San Francisco Chronicle op-ed. Both grew up in far less tolerant places before moving to the city. As San Franciscans, they write, we live in a city that is in stark contrast to the places of our youth. San Francisco is a place where we have felt safe to fully embody our respective identities and have done so with pride. This is precisely why, in the midst of the violence in Israel and Palestine, it has been devastating to watch hate-fueled rhetoric in San Francisco that both of us know too well. Thank you both for taking the time to uh, join us this morning. Thank you so much, Alexis. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, before we get started, I also just want to note that this is just a piece of the overall coverage that KQED has provided of what's happening in Gaza right now and its impact here at home. You can check out our earlier shows, the reporting coming from our own reporters, and of course the rest of the coverage from NPR and the BBC. Um, Ruth Ferguson, let's start off with you. Why did you decide to write this op-ed when you did? Mm. Well, I was thinking about this yesterday, and uh, like all good millennials, Nadia and I realized that our conversation, which ultimately led to this op-ed, actually started with an Instagram direct message, and Mm. it really actually began with disagreement. Um, Nadia had shared something on Instagram that I think in a moment of agitation, I found really difficult. And so I reached out to her. 
And I shared that and shared the kind of perspective I was bringing um, and what was upsetting to me. And what then resulted was a conversation between us where Nadia really recognized what I was saying and I recognized the points that she was making. And we both acknowledged that we were coming from different viewpoints, but that we could agree that there was a lot of common ground in, in our disagreement. And ultimately then, Nadia, something that meant a lot to me was she, as part of this conversation, which was days after October 7th, when I was feeling overwhelmed and depleted, Nadia said, I see you and I'm so sorry that this is happening. Mm -hmm. And I could say that back to her because I knew that we were having a shared experience where we were both overwhelmed and distraught with what was happening. And so we then kept in contact mm -hmm. over the next several days and decided to eventually put our heads together and, and write a piece mm -hmm. that we felt hungry for, we felt like we wished was reflected out there in the world, and ultimately heard from many other people that they felt that way as well. Mm -hmm. Nadia, talk to me about your experience of, of coming to write this piece. Yeah. Um, so I'll give the credit to Ruth on that. She's being very humble. So it definitely started from a point of disagreement and everything that Ruth just recapped. And a couple of days after we had that exchange and that dialogue, uh, Ruth reached out to me and was like, do you want to write an op-ed from a Muslim and Jewish perspective on this moment? And that it, within that moment, I didn't know right away. I didn't know if I had the capacity to do it uh, because everything was so emotional at this point. So just for the audience's reference, this op-ed was published about two weeks after October 7th mm -hmm. happened. So at the point where we started writing this, this was like a little over a week in um, and I wasn't sure of how to proceed. And I thought about it for one or two days. And honestly, um, it was not only like having the trust in Ruth and knowing that writing this would, with Ruth would be a good experience and a cathartic experience and I would be safe and seen in it. But it was also, I wasn't seeing anything from elected officials, from leaders in private industry, from even leading organizations that were calling out the Islamophobia that was to come. Um, and also the statements that were being issued, like the emotions were so high, there was so much anger there, even coming from official leaders that I really felt like I needed to do this piece with Ruth. And I'm I'm really glad at what it turned into because once it came out there, we got a lot of positive feedback that it was really beautiful, that it was something that people really needed in that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, Nadia, um, in the piece, you note that you both grew up in more conservative towns and, you know, endured violence and hate speech in your own childhoods. I mean, how did growing up in that environment make it harder to kind of witness what you were seeing in San Francisco? I mean, it definitely was like reactivating that trauma for sure. And, you know, in the piece, we mention how we've always felt safe here. We've always felt like fully liberated and able to be ourselves. And I can't say that, at least from my experience for where I grew up at the time that I grew up, especially like in the 9-11 era. Mm. But honestly, it felt like that cycle all over again. Like I, I, you know, I'm, as Ruth mentioned, we're millennials. I'm 38 years old now. Mm -hmm. um, so I was in my late teens. Um, I was 17 when 9-11 happened. And I remember oh. that era and all of that really clearly. And I just saw that cycle playing out again. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was in rural Washington, actually, not far from where Ruth grew up. And Ruth, um, 
where where we both grew up in, in rural Washington, you know, you mentioned that there's like a Confederate flag and a lot uh, like that we both drove by all the time right off I-5. Mm. And um, there was an enormous amount of anti-Semitism where we grew up, too. Um, I San Francisco did feel, as you put it in the piece, like really quite different along that score from, mm. from where I grew up. Um, but I think the thing that has really scared me in the last few months is not just the intensity of what people are saying, but the polling that's shown more and more Americans of kind of different types are seeing political violence in this country mm. um, as legitimate and, and justified. And I know that you work in politics. I mean, what, what, talk to me a little more about what has specifically felt really different. Yeah. So I think, as Nadia just said, um, it really reactivated a lot of trauma from my my youth. And um, yeah, it sounds like, Alexis, we we've seen, you know, this in in our childhood or, you know, younger days. Um, And yeah, I think also, too, there were when I was growing up in in my hometown, there was also a lot of like Nazi and and white supremacist imagery. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, one flagpole I'm thinking of too was a Confederate flag and a Nazi flag, mm-hmm. and I think seeing a lot of that imagery back now today on social media and in the streets. Um, just yesterday, I was walking um, in San Francisco and and saw you know swastikas drawn, uh, and it's. It feels overwhelming. And I think I've since leaving home, you know, going to college and then living um, in cities in my adulthood, I haven't felt the kind of fear that I've been feeling as of late. And especially post October 7th in the immediate days, first the silence, which was difficult, but then ultimately the way that people were responding um, and some of the things that people were saying before the war had really and the bombardment had continued and before, you know, 20,000 Palestinians had been killed in Gaza, in the early days when 1,400 Israelis were massacred, it was really difficult to see some of those messages. And it made me feel extremely scared um, to be Jewish. Yeah. Um, Nadia, I'm wondering if you have changed your behavior in any way since the conflict began, just kind of as a result of kind of the environment that you were feeling. Yeah, I appreciate that question. So I don't present as visibly Muslim. I don't cover my head. I don't wear any type of outer covering. And I have kind of like a very general face. So you can't really put me into any niche. (laughs) Um, But I so in terms of my own behavior, I will say so this isn't necessarily linked to Islamophobia, but it is linked to anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian. Like I do have a kafaya, which I purchased when I visited Palestine last year. Um, And I've worn that to protests, but I do actively think about like, where am I donning this? Even, you know, if I'm jumping on public transit in San Francisco, if I'm like leaving my apartment, like depending on like what spaces I'm going to be in, like I do think about that. I normally lean into like just wearing it and dealing with whatever and I haven't had to deal with anything negative yet Um, but that's more linked to like anti-Arab anti-Palestinian sentiment and that definitely got heightened especially after those three young men were shot in Vermont um, one of whom has been paralyzed from the chest down now but Mm. I will say um, so that's my feeling here like my mother presents as visibly Muslim like she covers her head she wears a coat and uh, you know I had already been uncomfortable with oh, I, I hope she'll be okay today. Like I'd always thought about that um, just mm. 
in my everyday before October 7th. And then after October 7th, it's something that I actually worry about every day. But she's she's not in San Francisco. She's in Texas. Mm. And Ruth, how about you? Have you changed the way you move mm. through the world? Ah, I, yeah, something that, uh, you know, around the, the time that our piece was uh, was published, which was, I think, on October 19th, I was, I already had a trip um, to travel internationally. And um, my last name, Ferguson, is, is not a Jewish last name. My father isn't Jewish. Um, and I'm married, and, and my husband's last name is a Jewish, like a noticeably Jewish last name. And he and I had this whole conversation where... He was really afraid for me to travel, like really afraid. And I understood it. And I realized I started going through this conversation with him where I was reassuring him, you know, I don't have a Jewish last name like Nadia. I don't there's nothing. I don't wear a, a yarmulke or anything that would make me kind of visibly Jewish. And at kind of the middle to end point of that conversation, I just realized how sad that was that I was having to kind of justify that it was okay that I would be safe to move through the world. And I think about that a lot. And I do think that in San Francisco, I feel incredibly privileged to walk through this city for the most part, feeling safe. And that is not the case for for many other people. And especially where I'm from, I I can't imagine what it would be like to experience this right now. We're talking about the rising numbers of hate crimes targeting both Jewish and Muslim people in the wake of the events in the Middle East. We're joined first by Nadia Rahman and Ruth Ferguson, the two authors of the op-ed that ran in the San Francisco Chronicle titled, As San Francisco Muslims and Jews, We've Always Felt Safe in Our City Until Now. Going to get deeper into the Islamophobia and anti-Semitism conversation in the next segment. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, have you changed your behavior as a result of the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and anti-Arab sentiment? If you made a decision not to wear a yarmulke, a headscarf or something, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, or you can try the email forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about rising numbers of hate crimes targeted at Jews and Muslims in the wake of the war in the Middle East. We're joined by Nadia Rahman and Ruth Ferguson, who authored a guest op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle about feeling safe in the city or not. 
Uh, well, I want to add a couple other uh, voices to the conversation. We're joined by Maha El Janadi, who's founder and executive director of the Islamic Networks Group, a nonprofit focused on building understanding of Muslim and other marginalized groups. Welcome, Maha. Thank you so much, Alexis. Sorry, I had to uh, unmute myself. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. We're also joined by Dov Waxman, who is professor of political science at UCLA and uh, director of the YNS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies and the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair of Israel Studies at UCLA. Welcome, Dov. Hi. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah. Um, Dov, you know, this conflict has come to our shores in a way that I think a lot of people who are Jewish and Muslim might have anticipated, um, but it still feels different. I just want to ask, you know, how are you feeling in this current moment? Um, depressed, exhausted, dispirited. I mean, it's been a extremely difficult, uh, you know, past couple of months. First and foremost, just observing what's happening in, in Gaza, uh, what took place in Israel, and obviously the reverberations around the world. It's just been uh, very, very depressing to uh, witness. Yeah. Maha, how about you? Um, I'm always grateful to God for my life and the work I do at ING, which is very positive, progressive, and it's about bridge building. Um, but at the same time, um, I am absolutely in grief over the people dying in Gaza. We have a Palestinian board member who lost 50 family members. I have a really good friend in San Francisco who lost 100 family members. So it's been mm. very difficult to take in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And but I'm, you know, nevertheless, I'm grateful for the outlet that I have in my work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Dov, you know, a lot of this conversation has centered around anti-Semitism uh, as against anti-Zionism, and they get thrown around a lot in conversations. It's obviously very fraught territory. Um, from your perspective, like, how do you define these for this conversation? Well, I do think it's important not to um, conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism, but it's also important to recognise that anti-Zionism can sometimes and even often be become anti-Semitic. So anti-Semitism is obviously um, a much broader understanding, I think we should really essentially think of it as anti-Jewish racism, as a form of racism, which operates, uh, obviously it has its own unique origins, its own history, its different manifestations to other forms of racism. But fundamentally, you know, we should approach it in the same way. We think of it as anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic attitudes or beliefs, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish behavior or actions, uh, conditions, um, as well as kind of cultural stereotypes and tropes. So there's, it's not, it's a lot more than just hating Jews, as many people think, just as, you know, anti-black racism is a lot more than just about prejudice. Hmm. Um, Anti-Zionism um, is, you know, really, I mean, that in itself has different kinds of definitions. I think if you think of it as simply the opposition to Israel's continued existence as a specifically Jewish state, that that would be one uh, common way of understanding anti-Zionism. But I think for many people who may identify as anti-Zionists, they may see it simply as supporting Palestinian equality, equal rights for Palestinians or Palestinian self-determination or opposing the oppression of Palestinians. So, you know, people use these terms and, uh, and often have very different meanings. And that, I think, is often and why there's so many arguments about them because people are often having different understandings of what these what these terms actually mean. Yeah. Maha, um, was Dov's description of those terms something that you sort of more or less see as the, the same definitions that you have in your own mind? 
Absolutely. Um, I wish you would have gone over the tropes, though, which is something that I'm going to do, because I think it's important for your public to sort of understand what those tropes are. So Islamophobia is essentially um, a framework by which we view Islam and Muslims in the United States and Western nations. Islamophobia is now transnational. Mm-hmm. Islamophobia results in anti-Muslim bigotry and hate crimes and incidences, but it shouldn't be conflated uh, with, with, with either. So Islam, Islamophobia is a framework we use to define and project Islam that has about three main tropes or narratives or stories we use to talk about Islam and Muslims. Hmm. So uh, the first and most common is that Islam is a religion of violence and aggression. Therefore, Muslims are considered a security threat. And from that lens, we get government policies like the Muslim ban, the Muslim watch list, surveillance of mosques, racial profiling in airports. The second uh, trope and more common is that Islam is culturally incompatible with the West. Uh, seen as not having common values with Western society, is incapable of being influenced by them, um, that the culture is considered to be inferior, backward, sexist, engaged in a clash of civilizations. And from this, we get America's greatest fears against Muslims living among them in their neighborhoods. So they will protest the building of mosques, which we've seen. They will try to ban uh, Sharia or Islamic law in courts, which never had a role to play. Right. Uh, we don't vote for Muslims, you know, and so forth. Um, and the, the rationalization is this. Since Muslims can't be American, they must be trying to make Americans Muslim. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and then the third trope is that Islam is seen as monolithic. Therefore, what happens in Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan must be what all Muslims in America do or or this must be how they all think. So the combination of all of this makes anti-Muslim hostility seem quite normal and um, and natural. Yeah. And and as a result, Muslims are rarely seen or heard. We're, we're almost persona non grata. Mm-hmm. And when I, um, you know, when you look at uh, American um, public perceptions based on polls about Muslims, it, it, it bears all of this out. Mm-hmm. How do you see the specific relationship between Islamophobia and, you know, anti-Arab racism? Oh, it's directly related. It's absolutely directly related. Um, and what I sometimes talk about is, um, you know, how Islamophobia is being played out right now in the treatments in the treatment of Palestinians in Gaza, compared to treatment of Israelis in media coverage, in policy and public perceptions. I mean, it's quite glaring and um, and obvious even before. Uh, what happened on October 7th, uh, which I can talk extensively about, but I don't want to sort of drag us into the war. But, yeah. um, but you know, public perceptions of Palestinians has always been incredibly uh, negative. Uh, just one example, there has, uh, even even on top of the news hour that, uh, that you know, I heard about um, news about Israel, but I have, but, but you didn't say anything about what's happening, uh, you know, with, with the Palestinians. There's no outpouring of sympathies, support, or empathy for what Palestinian civilians are, are going through right now. Uh, n- there'd been no official condemnation of things that have been said by Israeli officials referring to Palestinians as savages or, you know, calls to level the place or referring to Palestinians as human animals or, uh, when you, you know, calls to turn Gaza into deserted islands or city of tents. None of that has been happening. So, you know, it's public perceptions, it's media coverage that I think is, you know, is is incredibly one-sided. 
and then uh, look at our foreign policy. Uh, look at our institutional policies and corporations and colleges and schools. Some of the statements that have been released uh, by all of these institutions have tended to be one-sided, um, and um, which has really isolated the Palestinians that are um, in those uh, institutions. Um, you know, it's interesting, Maha, because there's also sort of like regional um, variations. When you think about those statements, um, I don't know if you've seen what has come out of the Bay Area, but they have tended to be in like, say, from the Richmond City Council or the Oakland City Council, um, expressions of support for Palestinian uh, people. Um are there statements that you feel like have been well done within that category, or do you feel like those institutions should not be making these statements? If you're going to make a statement, I think it absolutely needs to be more balanced. So my organization has released a statement uh, that is encouraging people to, to adopt, especially if they've already made one-sided statements. And it names... Uh, Muslims, Palestinians, Arabs, Israelis, Jews, um, and I think that that's sort of the course that they should have taken to, to address all of those people that are impacted by the current conflict. Uh, that hasn't happened. That hasn't been happening. But yeah, we have a statement online that I can um, reference. I can pull it up. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Dov, um, you know, we know that before October 7th, anti-Semitism was on the rise. Um, you know, the ADL tracked 3,700 anti-Semitic incidents. Uh, we also know from another group, the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State down in San Bernardino, this can be the worst year for anti-Semitic attacks in their sort of multi-decade tracking history. What, what else was going on or has been going on with that, that rise aside from these events um, in Israel? Yeah, so I think um, we see uh, a number of, you know, kind of triggers, if you like, uh, major events, uh, developments that lead to surges in anti-Semitic incidents. And that's been that's happened over the last few years. So we saw a real, really sharp surge in the number of anti-Semitic incidents, as well as other forms of hate crimes between 2015 and 2017, which corresponds with the uh, Trump presidency the first couple of years where there was a surge of hate crimes against many groups in, in the United States. And then over the last couple of years, um, another surge, of especially of anti-Semitic incidents, and that was partly related to the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, there's a kind of been a, a, a really rise of uh, conspiracism in general and the popularity of conspiracy theories. Um, and generally, um, you know, this explosion of hate speech on social media and on the internet and we've see, and there's clearly a, a connection between rising hate speech and hate crimes the more people uh, engage in hate speech and see hate speech the more that can like legitimize uh, forms of racism and lead to hate crimes so all of that's been happening for some time and now on top of this uh, and now you have you know October the 7th and the war we've seen that already play out previously in May of 2021 when there was a, a mini war between Israel and Hamas that also led to a surge of anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. Not on nothing close to what's taken place over the last two months. This has been really unprecedented. Um, but it's there's a long-standing pattern of escalations of Israeli-Palestinian violence leading to spikes in anti-Semitic incidents. And that, that's been happening in Europe for a long time. 
Well, um, I want to bring in uh, our first caller, Olga in Oakland. Welcome. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Fascinating discussion, and unfortunate. I, I, you know, I'm so sorry to hear what atrocities people experience. My comment was in question. <clears throat> my observation is that a lot of uh, hate crimes are committed by white Americans who seemingly have no stake in the conflict <clears throat> beyond being observers. Um, so my question if, uh, is, if this is your observation also. And another comment is that <clears throat> I feel like we need to look at the core of why people engage in those hate crimes and what kind of need they're trying to satisfy. And it seems like they're trying to express aggression, dissatisfaction with their lives, and they're just exploiting those situations, unfortunately. So wow. thank you so much. And, uh, keep representing both sides. I think it's very important. Thank you, Olga, for uh, for that comment. Um, you know, I think um, let's go to you, Maha, first, and then Dav will we'll take it to you. I mean, obviously, both groups that we're talking about here are subject to some of the same white supremacist hatred. Yeah, I so I don't think that the issue is a black and white issue, and it has a lot to do with the history of bigotry in this in this country. And for Islamophobia, it goes all the way back to the Crusades. So we're talking 11th century, and then it becomes really reinforced under colonialism. So we're, uh, you know, it goes back to the 1400s. And colonialism, of course, continued until the 20th century. So it's a lot of the tropes, a lot of the the narratives, the stories that we, that we mm -hmm. uh, tell uh, each other, uh, you know, about about Muslims and Arabs and so forth are that old, and they've been internalized here in the United States through the media, through education, what we decide to teach about it, people are not um, in, in government policies and so forth. So we've internalized this over centuries. So this is why people react viscerally to someone like me who wears the hijab, who stands out as a Muslim, why people react viscerally to, um, you know, someone um, you know, called Muhammad or is dressed in, in, in Arab or, or Indo-Pakistani garb. Um, and so this is not going to go away overnight. It's going to require all Americans to participate. And so so I think that, you know, being living in America makes us a little racist in the way that we judge and view other people uh, based on their, their, their race, the color of their skin, their national origin, their religion. Um, you know, and so forth. So Muslims, um, as was described by the um, by the by the Jewish scholar, it's it's pervasive. It's been going on for a long for a long time. It's it's systemic and and um, you know it's always existed. Um, according according to to polls, both Muslims and Jews are the most likely to experience um, religious discrimination. Sixty percent of Muslims and fifty eight percent of Jews compared with, you know, the experiences of Catholics, Protestants, Hindus and Buddhists and other hmm. and other religious groups. I can go on, uh, but um, but it's deeply systemic in this society for both our communities, for both the Jewish and the Muslim community. And we need a we need systemic solutions uh, to this. Yeah, I think, I think it begins with education. Mm -hmm. Dov, uh, obviously, there is this long history as well that goes along uh, with anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic tropes. Um, but specifically in the U.S. right now, do you feel like there are forces that want to 
exploit anti-Semitism in the way that Olga was describing for their, you know, their own political gain. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I I think the the greatest. There are many different ways in which anti-Semitism manifests in the United States, and um, but I think the most worrying form and the one that's becoming increasingly mainstreamed and legitimized is is the is in versions of white Christian nationalism, and um, you know, in particular within that, the popularity of something like the Great Replacement theory, and we've heard. Um, kind of that being echoed in mainstream Republican discourse. And so on the one hand, you have this growth of or resurgence of white nationalism, which can have uh, very deadly uh, effects, as we've seen in, in, you know, Buffalo and in Charleston and in Pittsburgh and Poway and so on. Um, and that is, I think that is, that's not to say that's the only form um, that anti-Semitism takes in the United States and it's the, or the only type we should worry about. But I think uh, just by virtue of numbers and the fact that right-wing um, domestic terrorism far outstrips kind of left-wing violence, I think that is what we have to be most concerned about. And particularly because that is a threat not only to, you know, minority groups across the United States, but also to the very foundations of America's kind of pluralistic democracy. Yeah, you know, we have a, uh, a, a comment that I think gets to some of the difficulty of this experience. You know, one uh, listener writes in to say, my Brazilian father is Jewish. My husband is Israeli, Arab, and Muslim. My three daughters are now lost somewhere in between. We started to observe Hanukkah over the last few years, but shocked and despondent by Hamas' attack on innocent people and then shocked and despondent about what the Israeli government is doing to the Palestinians who have lived at the mercy of various extremists, I couldn't bring myself to want to celebrate or display the menorah in our window, and I'm also afraid to do so. We're talking about the rising number of hate crimes targeted at Jews and Muslims in the wake of events in the Middle East. We are joined by Dov Waxman, a professor of political science at UCLA, as well as Maha El Janadi, founder and executive director of Islamic Networks Group, a nonprofit focused on building and uh, understanding of Muslim and other marginalized groups. Also joined by San Francisco Chronicle op-ed writers Nadia Rahman and Ruth Ferguson talking about the local situation here. And we're taking your calls on if you've changed your behavior in response to events. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about rising anti-Semitism and Islamophobia as the war in Gaza continues. 
joined by Maha Eljanadi, founder and executive director of the Islamic Networks Group, which is a nonprofit focused on building understanding of Muslim and other marginalized groups. Dov Waxman, professor of political science at UCLA. Nadia Rahman and Ruth Ferguson, who authored an op-ed for The Chronicle uh, with the headline, As San Francisco Muslims and Jews, We've Always Felt Safe in Our City Until Now. Also taking some of your calls and comments on whether you've changed your behavior as a result of the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, made different decisions about about your life. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786, or you can send us an email, forum at kqed.org. Um, Maha and Dub, I'm going to come to you on, on this one here. One of the really complicated things... Uh, about the current situation here in the U.S. is that many new people have kind of entered this conversation, which, as you both uh, have have demonstrated in this conversation, has a, a very complex and long history. And so there are these phrases and slogans and even just single words that have totally disparate histories within these different communities. So, you know, from the river to the sea is a great example that's been talked a lot about. Some people hear it and know it as a call for the freedom for, of Palestinian people. Other people hear it as a call for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jewish people. On the world yesterday, you know, a Palestinian man said that when he hears, I stand with Israel, he hears people calling for the destruction of his people. Uh, and I think other people have you know, other interpretations of that. So as we are in this decontextualizing social media world, um, how how do we approach this conversation in ways where we kind of can actually hear what the other person is saying, even if they're using uh, the, the same words? That seems very difficult in some of these situations. And, and uh, Maha, why don't we start with you? That is such a great question. And it's a conversation that I have all the time. And one of the things that I recommend to college presidents, to corporate executives, um, you know, school principals is the importance of having, you know, conversations between Muslims and Jews exactly on what you uh, what you just asked about, the, you know, the, the phrases that are being used by both sides and what they mean to each other. Because I think if they did, they would get a much better and clearer understanding of what is meant. Um, I think the professor talked about, you know, for example, being anti-Zionist. You have to first deconstruct what you mean by zionism it's the same thing with this is you know what when when people are making the calls for free palestine from the rivers to the sea what do they mean by it right they're not in my opinion uh you know and from from what i've heard i mean i live among arabs and, and muslims and we have these conversations it's not they're not being anti-semitic they're not uh calling for the destruction of jews or the destruction of israel they're calling for a once for one democratic state of of Israel that is democratic that would be inclusive of the Palestinians. But Jewish Americans, some Jewish Americans, hear it completely differently, right? That's just one of many examples. You mentioned some of the other terms as well, um, and I don't see how we can overcome it without having these conversations with each other. Yeah. You know, something I've asked actually, um, just to, for you read it, I've actually asked the, our White House liaison. To, to talk with our Jewish White House liaison and get national groups together to have this conversation because many of the problems and the complaints that we're hearing about in co college campuses and schools and corporations, uh, you know, comes from the other, you know, Jews complaining about Muslims and Muslims complaining about Jews. 
And why don't we just get together and have a conversation about about all of this? It hasn't happened yet, but my hope is that it does happen. I will show up. If I'm called, I will show up hmm. for that meeting. And I know that a lot of my friends, activists, will show up to that meeting because I think I think the conversation needs to happen. It's a great question. Dev? Yeah, so I think um, obviously these these terms have been um, much debated because they mean different things to different people. I mean, the term free Palestine can be understood as, you know, a call simply for Palestinians to have equal rights or self-determination. But it can also be understood as calling for the, you know, dissolution or even the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, and so there are these different meanings. And, um, you know, I don't think we can kind of definitively say this has one single meaning, whether it's free mm -hmm. Palestine or from the river to the sea. One of the things I think is helpful to think about, though, is it's not just enough to talk about intent. In other words, what does a speaker mean by a particular phrase, right? So I agree with Maha that, you know, certainly from many college students who are, you know, chanting free Palestine or from the river to the sea, they're not necessarily calling for ethnic cleansing or, you know, uh, genocide against Jews or anything. The fact is, though, that same slogan can be invoked by supporters of Hamas and by Hamas leaders who may, in fact, want uh, to carry out ethnic cleansing. In fact, have you know have already, in some ways, tried that and um, and and even a genocide. So these aren't entirely irrational different means. There, there's good reasons why people hear them differently. I do think it's not enough just to say, "Well, I mean this," because we do think when when it, about any statement about the impact it has, and especially the impact it has on historically oppressed groups, on minority groups. And so when you take a phrase like globalize the intifada, um, which many, many Jews understandably hear as invoking a call for violence, um, given particularly the, the fact that violence was characteristic of the second intifada and su suicide bombings, it is quite understandable why that is going to be seen as a very threatening chant uh, on a college campus by many Jewish students or faculty or staff. So I don't think it's enough just for those students making that chance to say, well, you know, that's not what we, we have in mind. You have to think about impact as well as intent. Yeah. I want to uh, bring in our local folks just for one second here. You know, uh, what's fascinating is, you know, you write this op-ed that is a, a, a united op-ed, but it actually this began... Um, with the disagreement on social media, a, a situation that many people are experiencing right now. Um, now, did you want to talk about like how you w was the disagreement over something exactly like we're describing here and, and how you came to some sort of common understanding? Yeah, um, it, it was actually exactly on uh, what Ma Maha and Dove just touched on. So I had put up on Instagram like an ask me anything about Israel and Palestine, someone had sent me a message of like, what does free Palestine mean? So I responded to that, put it in my Instagram story. And I said that essentially that it means Palestinian liberation, equal rights, etc. It, it does not mean the destruction of Israel. Um, so that is what Ruth mm -hmm. had responded to. And then we got into it and, and she said, well, you know, this is what it triggers for me. And then we started talking about from the river to the sea. So mm -hmm. I will mm -hmm. say initially, you know, Ruth sent me a pretty charged message and I was like, oh, and I had to kind of sit with it for a little while. But I knew she was coming from a good place. Like, this is my friend. We've done work together. We've had our ups and downs. 
Um, and because I knew she was coming from that good place and I didn't judge her as being bad, I was like, let's engage on the dialogue. And I went from there. Huh. Ruth, do you do you regret sending that first message or do you feel like that was a, you know, like, how do you feel about how that went? I don't actually at all. And I think Nadia and I have talked about this quite a bit. We've met several times over the past couple months and have talked so much about, you know, our emotions during this time when, you know, both of us and especially Nadia are really focused on meeting this political moment. Um, yeah, I, I think I wrote to her and and my feelings were like, hey, I need to tell you as my friend and as somebody who, you know, a colleague of mine in politics that this is upsetting to me. And although I agree and I did agree and I, th- I hope I think I acknowledge that, that part of what Nadi was saying, I completely agreed with, but that they're just like Dove and, and Maha were explaining there can be different meanings. And and it's not just like Dove said, it's not just about intent, but also impact. And I think we've seen, especially in San Francisco, but across the country and world, the dissection of um, from the river to the sea. And that is something that Nadia and I, before writing the op-ed, we also really talked about at length, where mm-hmm. Nadia's experience and so many people's experience is that people use from the river to the sea in a peaceful call to justice um, uh, and, you know, self-determination. And I also acknowledge and I think that we all must hold that it can sometimes be used violently and it has been used as a slogan of Hamas's. And so but I think the, the important thing is that, like Nadia said, like, she had trust in me and I had trust going into that conversation, knowing that she would be able to engage with me first and foremost as my friend and, you know, kind of secondly as political actors. Hmm. Were there other things? Oh, go ahead. And I jump in. I What Ruth and, and Nadia did is exactly what needs to happen, which is understanding, right? Where Ruth reached out to Nadia trying to understand. I Well, I don't know what was actually said in the first <laughs> message. <laughs> yes, but, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and then Nadia responded and, and, and wanted to have this. This is exactly what needs to happen between our two communities, and it's not happening. I think intention is really important because people are getting fired over this stuff. Mm-hmm. Their, um, their offers to work is, is being rescinded. Uh, people are being demoted. I mean, serious, there are serious consequences for all of this and why all of this needs needs clarification. And I think it's wrong to conflate what a regular, ordinary Palestinian or Arab or a Muslim is saying in a protest with what Hamas is doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's also kind of, you know, playing a, sort of a result of Islamophobia, assuming that these people actually know what Hamas is saying. I don't know what Hamas is saying. I haven't read anything that Hamas has written nor would I ever even seek it out. I think most of us living here in America, like don't read, uh, haven't read, it's probably in Arabic as well, um, you know, what, what Hamas has written about these issues. So then conflating what Hamas is saying with what ordinary people, Americans are saying here is is, is part of the problem. Yeah. Um, 
We are talking about the rising numbers of hate crimes targeting Jews and Muslims and this sort of broader conversation that we're all having right now about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and the events in the Middle East. We are joined by Maha El-Janadi, founder and executive director of the Islamic Networks Group, a nonprofit focused on building understanding of Muslim and other marginalized groups. We're also joined by Dov Waxman, a professor of political science at UCLA, director of the Nazarene uh, Center for um, Israel studies. We're also joined by um, Nadia Rahman and Ruth Ferguson, who wrote an op-ed for The Chronicle, which you can find as San Francisco Muslims and Jews. We've always felt safe in our city um, until now. Ruth is an activist and co-founder of Stop Sexual Harassment in Politics, and Nadia Rahman is founder of Rahman Consulting. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information on how to support KQED, go to uh, kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Um, I did want to talk about, and uh, Dov, I'm going to bring you in on this. I mean, what about when people do have, you know, actual differences in opinion and not just miscommunications? Like how, how, how do we approach that particular conversation? Well, I think we have to, you know, recognize that many people are going to have very legitimate differences of opinion about, you know, what the future of Israel-Palestine, for example, or or the current war. Um, And, you know, for one thing, it's important to engage with those differences and to discuss them and debate them. It doesn't mean to say everybody's going to end up in some sort of great harmony and, uh, you know, enjoy a kumbaya moment. But it is important to recognize that even with somebody you might have very strong disagreements with, disagreements that might not be reconcilable, those disagreements don't necessarily stem from prejudice. Um, and I think sometimes we often, you know, use the term anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, where we're actually talking about just like legitimate political differences of opinion. Um, and so, you know, Somebody may just have a different view. They may have a different understanding. They they may see the world in a different way. That's not because they're necessarily motivated by hostility towards Jews or hostility towards Muslims. It may be the case. Um, and we certainly have seen many expressions of that. But I also think we can't, we have to be careful about kind of prejudging or assuming the worst motives. Um, I think it's much better to start out with, at least until proven otherwise, you know, a, a, a view that the person has just a, a genuine mm-hmm. a disagreement. Often these disagreements stem from the fact that, especially when it comes to viewing the current war, many of us are kind of living in alternative realities. So if you follow, follow some news sources and, you know, Israeli news sources or you're, you know, on, on like Jewish Twitter, you're going to be seeing one experience, one one set of experiences. You're going to be focusing a lot more, hearing a lot more about the hostages in Gaza, the, uh, you know, the survivors of the October 7th terrorist attack, etc. If you're in more, uh, kind of, if you're more exposed to Palestinian or uh, other news sources, then you're going to be hearing much more about the terrible suffering and devastation that's happening in the Gaza a strip. Mm-hmm. So, so the fact that some people are focusing on one and some people are focusing on the other doesn't mean that they're necessarily motivated by bias or prejudice. It's simply that they're responding to different uh, media cues, different environments that they're... And nowadays, the person next door to you or the person sitting next to you in a cafe, they're in some ways living in an entirely different informational reality because we are in our yeah. kind of social media bubbles. And I want to bring in uh, caller Marilyn because I think some people are also you know, struggling in their own minds. Um, Marilyn in uh, Petaluma, welcome. Hello. Hey, Marilyn, go ahead. Hi. 
Hi. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a cold and can hardly speak. But briefly, I'm Jewish, and I've always had a Star of David in my window at Hanukkah time, and this year I'm not. And um, I don't, it, it's turned into a polit, it's become a political symbol instead of uh, cultural or to some people religious. To me, it's more cultural, but it's, I don't want to make a statement that's not my beliefs because I'm not supportive of Israel's politics. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. I'm not supportive of Israel's war effort. So if I put up a Star of David, I don't want to be making a statement mm-hmm. to the world that I am supportive of that. And it's really sad. I mean, I think my daughter said, don't put that Star of David in the window. And perhaps she was thinking you might get a rock through the window. I wasn't afraid of the rock through the window. Like, I put up a Black Lives Matter sign, I don't care if somebody throws a rock through the window, because I know what I mean, and they know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But with the Star of David, I don't want to be misunderstood. Hmm. Marilyn, that's such a, and, such a great point, yeah. and I, I appreciate that there's many people out there, you know, um, grappling with, with similar um, circumstances. You know, I, I also want to get to one last um, listener who writes in to say, you know, my mother who died 13 years ago today was a Holocaust survivor. And as much as I miss her, I'm happy that she and my dad are not alive right now. We were not religious, I'm an atheist, but it saddens me to think that no matter uh, who I am, what I stand for, whatever good I've done won't matter. All that will matter is that I am a Jew and thus worthy of hatred. I had a momentary thought that because of my last name, my former husband's, I and my children won't immediately and easily be identified as Jews, but that actually makes me very sad. So much grappling to be done, and I'm so grateful to all of you for coming on the show and, and helping us do um, some some of this grappling. Uh, we've been talking with Dov Waxman, a professor of political science at UCLA and uh, director of the Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. Thank you for joining us, Dov. Thank you. We've also been joined by Maha El Janadi, founder and executive director of the Islamic Networks Group. Thank you so much for joining us, Maha. Thank you so much, Alexis. Mm-hmm. Nadia Rahman is founder of Rahman Rahman Consulting uh, and one of the co-authors of a guest op-ed in the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us, Nadia. Thank you so much. And we were joined by Ruth Ferguson, an activist, co-founder of SHIP, Stop Sexual Harassment in Politics, the other co-author of the the SF Chronicle op-ed. As San Francisco Muslims and Jews, we've always felt safe in our city until now. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Thank you so much, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thank you to our callers and our commenters. Really appreciate that. Um, Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.